In the world of tech, there's nothing that gets discussed more than reliability. But when we dig into this technical topic, we find the concepts are much more fundamental. On this weekly podcast, we dig into how the concepts of reliability impact every aspect of our lives. Welcome to the Reliability Room. I'm your host, Emily Arnott, Community Manager here at Blameless. Hello, I'm Emily, the Community Manager here at Blameless. I'm joined by Jake England. Hi, I'm Jake England. I am a Senior Site Reliability Engineer here at Blameless on our infrastructure team. And for the last two episodes, we've been diving into Jake's past working on Magic the Gathering Online, a very unique and uniquely challenging software project that seeks to emulate the paper game of Magic the Gathering, which is nowhere near as easy as it seems. Even if you're a Magic fan and you're thinking, yeah, that sounds hard, it's even harder than you think. (laughs) So we've talked about a lot of really great reliability lessons that have emerged from Jake's time there and kind of looking back at it, thinking about How do we build adaptive software? How do we be ready for changes? How do we deal with user experiences when sometimes the users maybe don't really understand statistics? (laughs) When the broken state versus the healthy state is sometimes hard to parse. And we're just going to kind of keep exploring these topics as we look to even more examples that can emerge from Magic the Gathering. You know, thinking about like, what does the user experience look like for Magic the Gathering online? And... We, from back in the day where I was there, but it's like, you know, how do you think about something like that? And something that I really appreciated was a part of Wizards' philosophy when it came to a lot of uh, testing was to try to cast a really wide net, both in terms of, like, they had a lot of things where, like, they would have, like, um, user, like, studies where, you know, one of my uh, colleagues, Adriana Moscatelli, uh, got to work with, like, an actual, like, user researching, like, you know, have people come in. Mm. and, And in this case, she was working on, like, a major UI redesign. And that like having people actually interact with it and seeing how they work and not only just like dedicated, excited magic players, you know, is that it was very, you know, it's very easy for wizards to be able to pull from a pool of competitive players because they're fairly well known in the space. They're fairly enthusiastic about it. Mm -hmm. And that if they're not already in a state where like they're collaborating with wizards in some way, most of them are pretty enthusiastic to do something to help out. You know, is it even just like, hey, come by, you know, the office and you can, you know, get free lunch and meet some of the, you know, some of the people that work on it kind of thing. Like, if if they even smell the idea that they might see a new card before other people, (laughs) they'll be kicking down the doors. (laughs) (laughs) There is so much excitement around it. And I mean, the office is really cool, though, too, is, you know, just seeing like, especially because there's so much art to it too. And, mm. and so, you know, such, you know, just great worlds around it. But uh, so like, you know, there's all these statues and there's, uh, um, you know, paintings, especially is because just the art community around magic is just incredible on its own. But then they also had things like they had one of the printed card sheets um, from like alpha that's like framed on one of the walls wow. somewhere. And oh so, you know, gosh. to see this, just this uncut sheet of some of you know, these History. old, yeah, these <laughs> cards that just kind of set the, you know, that started everything mm-hmm. um, that there, you can walk around that office and just find, you know, more and more things to just, you know, bring you joy, especially, you know, if you're excited about anything in that space. So, you know, is it wizards uh, could engage fairly easy with a lot of um, very knowledgeable and very uh, like engaged and enthusiastic players. But they also made you know efforts to be able to reach out to people that didn't necessarily know magic all that well, or maybe had never actually even played it before and being able to get that feedback too, which I mean, it's also just really, you know, it, 
having the mindset is that there's always room to grow in your customer space. There's always, you know, some new market or avenue or just like approach that you can take that may be able to get some more people excited about something that you're doing. Maybe not the entire thing that you're doing, but some part of that space. And that when we're talking about like just what it means, not only for magic, but for any engineering org that is providing a service to a user and is developing on that that service as an engineering organization, that these insights, these diverse viewpoints can be so incredibly valuable. And it's one of the reasons why like diversity is such a huge like values topic for me mm. um, is because not only is the fact that it's just like there, I feel like there's so many people in SRE who would be amazing at SRE that aren't even aware that like this is an avenue that they may be able to relate to. Mm. Or, you know, like I had no idea SRE was something I wanted to do until basically I got my foot in the door at Google and I said, like, hey, we want you to do SRE. And then I learned it's like, (laughs) this is what I've been looking for this entire time kind of thing. Oh, I am. You know, so often in organizations, you know, like we recruit from people that we know. And a lot of the people that we know are similar to us in, you know, one way or another. And so being able to break outside that and, you know, just get differing viewpoints, differing opinions it doesn't just help your service, you know, it can also help your organization. You know, I can, it's something that I really love about our culture here at Blameless too, is because we put such an effort into cultivating psychological safety and being able to just have an open environment where, you know, I have never been afraid to admit when I mess up and I mess up constantly, you know, (laughs) it's it's, uh, something I think charity majors uh, talked about that senior engineers and especially the really experienced, you know, I'm senior, but you know, you know, staff, senior staff, principal, distinguished that, these people have such great stories about the mistakes that they've made because the mm-hmm. things that we're doing are really hard. You know, as, as I'm talking, mm-hmm. as a junior engineer working on uh, Magic the Gathering online, that especially just as a junior engineer in general, you know, you have this expectation. It's like, I have to do things perfect. And I have to, you know, I have to meet all, you know, I have all these expectations for myself. And I feel like there's all these expectations from the organization. And I have to meet all these things. And depending on where you are as a junior engineer, that can really kind of shape and impact your career because are those expectations reasonable? Mm. Um, and, the, you know, I, I've seen places where the only feedback you get is you're not working fast enough, which mm. for somebody like me, great. So now you're telling me I'm underperforming and now I'm going to be like underperforming and anxious, which is only going to like mm. slow me down more um, mm-hmm, versus mm-hmm. just being able to like, if it's because I'm doing something wrong, being able to like get actionable feedback on like, how can I do this better? Not just that, like, you're not doing enough. Like, it's such a valuable part of that process, especially for junior engineers. But then, you know, similarly in the SRE space, especially when it comes to the fact that when you're talking about things like incident response, you can practice all day and there's better ways to practice than others, but there's no substitute for really getting in on like a production incident where nobody actually knows what's going on. And especially looking around the room and realizing that it's just like, even in this room of just, you know, super experienced, super accomplished people, that we can all be scratching our heads or that you met, you know, it may come down to it, it's like, oh, you know, is that like the lead is actually the one who made some mistake here on this. Mm. That having that as part of your, just like the way that you shape how you view yourself in an organization and especially how you view the work that you do is that there's such, you know, you, you it's so unreasonable to expect 100%, you know, is that like, and Absolutely. for humans, even yes. like, you don't expect five nines, you know, it's like, even if you're getting one nine <laughs> as a human, like humans are so valuable, you know? Oh yeah. I, if I'm hitting 90% as a human being, that's like, <laughs> that's a good day. <laughs> Absolutely. And from day to day, you know, some days I'm at 90 and other days I'm like five. And it's yeah. just like, sorry, this is just not a day where anything's getting done. And there's organizations that embrace that and mm-hmm. can even like build and accommodate that kind of capacity. And I feel like there's so many people 
who can be real excited about the space, especially because they can relate to the fact is that like, I am not as a person like reliable and not to say that it's like, I can't like meet my commitments and stuff, but just like things happen. Yeah. Um, yeah. And being able to design a system it's one of my favorite things about SRE is being able to design, you know, a system, uh, cultivate a culture in an organization, being able to write documentation so that like, if, you know, I, if I get hit by a meteor tomorrow, can things still keep working? Mm-hmm. Or like, if I just have a really bad day, like, is it going to impact the organization? Being able to build things that can be resilient to that kind of disruption. And um, here I'll plug our other talk, which was all about them <laughs> being resilient around these disaster type scenarios of meteors hitting and what have you. <laughs> <laughs> yes. But yeah, um, it's all about these socio-technical systems. Can you make absolutely. it socio-technically adaptive? Can you adapt to people not being at their best on a given day? Can you adapt to human error, which was never going to go away? Absolutely. And one of the things that's so rewarding for me is that like, when you cultivate something where those answers end up being more, yes, we can, that like, I find I get more productive because that kind of just like security of not having to worry mm. about like, not mm-hmm. blowing things up to just kind of have the liberty and the, the confidence to be able to say, I can try something. And if it blows up, you know, is that we have room for me to make mistakes. We have room for me to not necessarily understand something, especially because when it comes to learning something that you don't know how long it's going to take somebody. And you may be lucky enough to be able to recruit for everything that you want in an organization, but making room for people to upskill is not only valuable for being able to then adapt to new technologies, but it's also just valuable for them as engineers for feeling satisfied in their jobs mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. you know learning more things and being able to feel more valuable, not only here, but anywhere else you might take that information. Like, I mean, that's one of the things that I look for is like getting to learn things through my day-to-day is what makes me want to come to my job. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's one of the things I absolutely am delighted about here at Blameless is the fact that it's like, I get these opportunities to say, I've never done that before. And now I have, and now I have opinions about it and things like that. <laughs> but so like in Wizards' case, where it's one thing to get people that know magic really well, but being able to reach out to the people that don't. And this was something that it is a challenge though, because you don't exhaust your supply of expertise as much as mm. you can exhaust your supply of ignorance. You may have many more people mm. that are ignorant about it, but like once you start engaging with a particular person, you know, they're going to start learning. And it's one of the things that I liked about the kind of like QA team that I got to work with is that there were some, eventually, you know, they all do become experts, but like when recruiting for these things, it isn't necessarily the expectation that like you got to be an expert on the rules. Actually not being an expert on the rules can mm. be really valuable mm-hmm. um, because it gives you a different perspective. It gives you different insight. And yeah, it'll it, probably give you the intuition that's maybe more common, especially, you know, among newer players, among players that you really want to develop into in franchise players. You have to be considerate, you know, is the game going to play the way that they expect it to? Or exactly. are you expecting them to actually read 160 pages of the comprehensive rules before <laughs> they can predict what does this card do with this card? <laughs> exactly. And so it's such a joy though too to just watch people learn as mm. as as things go along but absolutely it's so it was something that was such a valuable perspective from QA but so like you know there is this challenge of like okay we need to keep supplying this kind of stream of i don't know everything about this space because we do end up just like cultivating expertise which is you know valuable in its own ways but also diminishes this is other thing that we may be looking for um <laughs> which is it's just like what do other people think about this yeah so you know as we t- pool you know, of naive outsider perspective <laughs> exactly and especially it's all people that even with that naivety and like outsiderness that they want to engage right is it like mm, if people don't mm. care about magic and it's like how are you going to make me care about it in a way where I will want to engage with you? And so we talked about like what happens when we get user reports that are like, hey, this thing isn't working right. And it's just like, actually it is. 
Mm-hmm. Um, the same kind of thing happened in QA and both among the, you know, experienced and inexperienced players. And sometimes that is just, you know, and the funny thing is that sometimes it is just a misunderstanding of things. And other times it's like, nope, that is actually a bug. Um, <laughs> and sometimes, you know, those are the kinds of bugs that get uncovered by people that that aren't working within the same like established framework of like something as we, we were talking about, like adding new cards to Magic mm-hmm. the Gathering and what that looks like. And the fact that like a lot of cards may already be processed and available just because they match some pattern that we've already seen before. So on QA side, something that I thought was really interesting is that every tester had their own favorite cards for testing Mm. certain interactions. And it was interesting to see what kinds of things ended up in their kit. And some people may be, and like what kinds of interactions you would test would sometimes get split between things. But then there'd be things where it's just like, if I need to test, you know, some sort of enter the battlefield trigger that I would always use this particular card or something like that. You know, oh, I love Man of War jellyfish. (laughs) That's the one for me. (laughs) Exactly. Or, you know, I just need to test something that might trigger on when I tap another creature. And so even just like Mm -hmm. Lanowar Elves, that's the first one that comes to mind. I just need to tap Mm -hmm. something for mana, you know, or something like that. And so then part of that comes down to them being able to understand how it is in the game, which then leads to this, um, you know, partnership between development and QA, Mm. where like, as the people who are actually implementing these cards, being able to show, it's like, hey, if you need something that fits this pattern, like, here's everything that has this pattern in it. And so Mm. like, these are the cards that you can pull from. And possibly that's because, you know, they may only need one in that space, or possibly because they want to test every interaction in that space. And while it may be true that like, this particular mechanism will always work the same, that everything else about that card might be different in what we're actually testing in that case. Is that like, all right, now we've seen how this works with the red mana card. How does it work the same with the black mana card? Mm-hmm. Um, or with, you know, any other kind of thing like that. Um, in software, you can never be sure that there isn't some really bizarre edge case, some deep, deep spaghetti code thing <laughs> that'll make it work entirely fine in one scenario and then not at all in another. <laughs> exactly. And especially just as you accumulate more technical debt, because you know, technical debt doesn't just come in the fact of like, we know this isn't working as well. It can also just come in the form of nobody knows how this works anymore. <laughs> and that can be, you know, really common in organizations where like maybe you had, you know, a massive, uh, you know, resignation or layoffs or something like that. And just parts of your knowledge are just gone. But then, you know, it can also uh, just come up with, as we develop this, that, or, you know, even just from the form of like, only one person ever touched this piece of code and it was six months ago. And so much has happened in the last six months that they don't know either anymore. <laughs> um, so, you know, being, and just kind of accepting that there is going to be some amount of that going on is something that like, you know, it's important to set those kind of expectations in your organization and as you're going through the development process and iterating on anything. Because especially so like, if you're not doing that, you're probably cultivating a ton of burnout because mm. just trying to stay on top of everything here, especially it's like, you know, it's just like Katamari uh, technical debt too, too, which, <laughs> you know, especially on something that is just changing as fast as Mitko does that, you know, is like, you don't have time to slow down and like shred some things off. It's like, we're just going to keep going, you know, Barely except for where... Picking up cards every set, every year. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, again, it just truly blows my mind that, like, being able to, like, manage that level of complexity. But so, you know, there is this, you know, this tight relationship between development and the research and development, or, you know, the actual, like, engineering development and the research and development and engineering development and the uh, QA people. And there's also the part about kind of talking about, like, what things look like more on the platform side because Mm -hmm. like i worked particularly on the rules engine specifically you know this was just the 
this is on um, in the magic gathering world i think at least at the time there was like five levels of judges and so the the joke was that magic gathering online was the level six judge because um, you know it should get it you know right even more often than some <laughs> that. The, the ultimate 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 authority <laughs> <laughs> exactly um but work crashes because there's too many tokens <laughs> <laughs> yes and so like it was interesting for me to learn how this kind of fit in because one of the abstractions that had been made and i i don't think this is true anymore this was you know 12 years ago but there was the you know actual like platform that gate you know this is what you sign into this is how you interact with your collection but then when it comes time to play a game that that's when our little part comes up and that it was interesting that at least in this case this was for miko it was every game had its own instance of a game server hmm. and it was interesting to think about this because it meant there were a lot of trade-offs because like as you're thinking about like the platform that people would sign into and be able to access their cards you definitely want you know a high level of reliability and availability with that you want people to oh, be able yeah. to sign in even if they can't play a game you know even if our, our system's broken feeling like you can sign in like if you can't sign in you know like something's wrong yeah, and especially to get at my cards <laughs> exactly <laughs> and especially collection. you know yes. i probably spent real money on that it's uh, exactly terrifying. yeah and feeling isolated from that like that's <laughs> not great or you know and especially said if something happens or i'm looking through my collection and a card that i know you know i just pulled yesterday is not in my collection anymore mm -hmm. like that is not a situation that you want to hit either mm -hmm. um versus when it comes time to play a game and the rules you know the game server and the rules engine starts up and it's got its own little instance on this much bigger platform that there's a lot more room for error. You know, as much as you mm -hmm. want the precision in the rules, that there were situations where just like, I think there was a skeletonized was a card where, you know, it's like, you know, destroy target creature and create some skeleton creature in their place or something like that. We had this just amazing bug where it failed like 100% of the time, like consistently in production and would not at all on any development machine. Weird. And, you know, just a Very question of like, <laughs> how does that happen? Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, there was a challenge there where it's like, great, do we just have to like disable this card? Um, and, you know, with a rewrite that that issue went away. But, you know, as much as people try to dig into it, it was just like, we can't figure out this particular <laughs> issue. But, you know, it wasn't like skeletonized not working or, you know, even causing a crash of the game server. Like, it may suck to lose your progress in that game, but... It was interesting too because it wasn't like the players were so it wasn't manufacturing discontent among the players you know they may be mm. upset at us because it doesn't work but it wasn't adding like friction in the community and so that was something that almost kind of steers it more towards this is more acceptable than other failure modes that might be making like people are you know is that especially like if it's failing in like competitive play or something like that where you know there may actually be some like cultivated resentment just because it's like you know i was supposed to win this or whatever it is yeah, or i had a really yeah. good game then something breaks I've seen um, lots of examples of this where it's like an obscure card. It doesn't work quite right, but everyone is okay with it because it's not competitively viable. But then maybe some iteration of that card gets printed or some combo with it appears. And then suddenly it's in like top level competitive decks that are being run in tournaments. And then it's like a sev one incident probably because exactly, <laughs> um, exactly you know, people that are freaking thing. out that I ought to have won that game and advanced in this tournament, but the card is bugged, and I can't imagine what kind of nightmare that is uh, for like a production team to try to be keeping up with the competitive meta game <laughs> to figure out where bugs might suddenly jump up in severity. <laughs> and, you know, it's, it's so it was it was such a you know important thing for especially for 
the development uh, teams to be integrated with so much of the rest of the community. Like maybe it's not like you're, you're getting that input from somewhere and maybe it's not like, you know, me as a junior developer getting that stuff, but like my lead knows what's going on there and is, mm-hmm. and is being plugged into, you know, just what kind of changes are coming down the line. Because yes, exactly as we're talking about here, like cards suddenly going from obscure thing that nobody really uses. And if it doesn't quite work, it's fine to suddenly like, Oh, this is complete. You know, this is competitively viable, and now we have to care about it more. That being able to, you know, there was absolutely value in having people that were very much like in the competitive space that still did competitive play, and that were just like so apprised and on top of like what those interactions were, mm-hmm. um, so that we could stay abreast of this somewhat. And uh, I think this applies to like a lot of software stuff too. Like, no matter what service you're providing, you have to be in touch with the most invested users, right? the people who will tell you right away, oh, this is actually quite critical to the user experience. And maybe you thought it was obscure. Maybe you thought, oh, statistically, not that many people use it. But if people really rely on it and those are your key users, those are the people that you have to be, have an ear open to, have a channel with. Yeah, absolutely. And one of the like last things that I'm kind of reminded about in this space, just in terms of like the trade-offs that you get to make was that along with the rules and you know, the fact that this is a game server that would start up every time somebody wanted to play. And then also that when the game was done is that it would get taken down that like, there was one case where I discovered like, we have a memory leak and because it, it was written in, in uh, like C++, but it actually didn't even use a lot of the like C++ type stuff. So it was kind of like C, like it was like somebody C that knew C. Plus. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like somebody who had done a whole bunch in C just realized, mm-hmm. oh, C plus plus is a thing, and transferring some of this, but then especially with this integration where you know we're having, uh, you know, I think yeah, like a Perl script that's actually like parsing the uh, using regular expressions against the Oracle text and the cards to get something, and then incorporating it. You know, is it wasn't just like one language; it was this mm-hmm. entire ecosystem of things working together. Mm-hmm. But I, like as part of that entire way that things plugged in, I realized like oh no, we've got this like little memory leak. Like every time that we would create a particular type of list that it was like, we lose this like reference at the beginning for it. And that just always sticks around. And that if this was something that was on like the platform side, like this could be a huge issue because like this is a long lived server that, you know, it's just going to continually just like grow in memory until it crashes versus in the game server world. This actually wasn't a consideration we had to think about at all because it was such a short-lived thing that, you know, it would be unusual for a game to go over like maybe a couple of hours. Mm-hmm. And even in the cases where they might, that it didn't necessarily mean that things were going to blow up right away. Is that it might actually be like several days before this actually got to a level where mm-hmm. um, it would be like at a point where it couldn't even run somewhere anymore. And that especially like just if you had good like resource management where it's just like, oh, we can't schedule anything on this particular system because we don't have enough memory because there was this one really bloated game store on it, but at least that one is still running. But, you know, in some places, like a memory leak would just be like, we need to fix this. Yeah, uh, but yeah. on these like short-lived processes, it was just like, this is acceptable technical debt. Like it's not worth trying to fix this problem. We know it's an issue. And, you know, just being able to understand like, in the context, you know, is, you know, like there isn't this like absolutism to like any kind of particular like problem or dysfunction. It really does depend on how it fits into the system and what the users are going to see and what their experience is going to be. And like having that is just uh, recognizing that it's just such a valuable part of like what we do in terms of being able to make something really look reliable and available. I mean, feel reliable and available. Mm-hmm. I-, I think uh, that surface is like a really good lesson too, which is that you know, you are going to run into a lot of these situations where, where you have acceptable tech debt and you can go, okay, this is a little bit broken, but it works. But that's something that needs to be communicated and made generally known because imagine the system changes. Imagine that you're sitting up now, the game states are persistent, that <laughs> these instances don't go away. 
And uh, exactly. maybe the people that realize, oh, there's actually a small memory leak in here have left the company. <laughs> uh, suddenly you're completely out of server space. <laughs> so I think that's a really good lesson. Like tech deck can be okay, but as long as it's visible, as long as it's above water and you can remember that it's there. This was really great. I think once again, we've managed to take some stories and some experiences from Magic the Gathering and really find some very... I don't want to say profound. <laughs> that, that seems a little too uh, mystical, perhaps, but maybe that's appropriate here. Because I think these reliability lessons are really cool, and the way that they can kind of crop up in different formats is really fascinating. That's what I really want to explore on this show. Absolutely. It, it, for me, just kind of realizing, like, even at the time, like, I, you know, I get into Tesserine and I'm doing this completely different thing once I join Google, and then looking back and realizing it's like, how much these different like patterns and these same questions came up, even though, and I just didn't have the framework to even kind of like analyze and address them and how useful that framework can be for just being able to help just contextualize whatever it is that you're looking at, especially just as you're dealing with really complicated systems, you know, whether it's just software in general, but especially something, you know, as, as uh, sophisticated as Magic the Gathering online. Well, thank you so much for joining and sharing your experiences. I hope we'll get a chance to talk more in the future. And look forward to other episodes with uh, other guests talking about how reliability has cropped up in their own lives. Thank you so much for having me and thanks everyone for joining. Thank you so much. Have a great day. We hope you've enjoyed your time in the reliability room. Everywhere we look, we see the challenges and value of good reliability. But no matter how you prepare, things will go wrong. Orchestrating your team around incident response is key to making a product users can trust. Automate a seamless incident management process with Blameless, the incident response workflow that keeps your communication and response running smoothly, even when things go wrong. Visit blameless.com trial to start your free trial today. That's blameless.com trial.